With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gabfest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Credit Karma. Don't pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you can see your credit score right now absolutely free. Just text GABFEST to 89800 to download the free Credit Karma app and get started. Again, text the word GABFEST to 89800. And by Blue Apron. Blue Apron sends gourmet recipes and all the fresh ingredients you need to make them right to your door. Farm fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy-to-follow recipe card, so you can create a delicious meal in 35 minutes or less. Visit blueapron.com GABFEST to get your first two meals free. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for December 11th, 2015, the Is He Hitler or Mussolini edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is here with me in Slate's Washington studio. John, do you know this is the last time we will use the studio? I know. I'm sort of sad for our sweaty box here, but maybe there will be a better box in the new Do you think place. we'll be just as sweaty? Yeah, so Slate's DC office is moving, and we're going we're gonna to have a temporary studio for a while, and then we'll have a new studio. I like that studio. Well, also, by the way, this studio is a vast improvement over our previous studio, and both were exponentially greater than the, the chair museum where we first started our- What was our oh first God, studio? Our first studio is in L Street. Street. But what was the studio that was the, not the chair museum? What, what, did we have another studio we, in this? Across the hall here. That we did? Remember Andy Bouvet? We used to sit in the room with us. That little triangular non-half room thing. Oh, my God. That's thing. right. We did. I can't I, believe you forgot I totally forgot that. that. Now, yeah. now I remember, of course. That is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. She doesn't have a chance to. Maybe, Elle, you'll take a picture of the studio on its last day so Emily can have a chance to see it. Uh, how are you guys doing? Are you well? Yeah. Emily, you well? Yes. All right. On this week's GabFest, good Lord, Donald Trump his wicked, wicked proposal to ban Muslims from coming to America. Then we will double up on the Supreme Court for those of you who have been wondering, waiting for Emily Bazelon to roll out some of that great legal knowledge, drop that WMD of legal knowledge. We're going to get so much of it today. We'll have the case of Abigail Fisher, the University of Texas, and affirmative action. Then a confounding one-person, one-vote case we talked about a while ago, now comes to the Supreme Court. Justice Kennedy, get busy. You have a lot of work to do. In cocktail chatter, I don't know what will happen in cocktail chatter. Something will happen in cocktail chatter. Some things chatter. will be discussed. And then in Slate Plus, we will talk about 68-year-old Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones just had twins. Is that a crime? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. There was a fantastic little video sent around this week. I don't know if it was old or new. Maybe, John, you know. Sent around by Time of an American Eagle kind of 
attacking Donald Trump or nearly attacking Donald Trump and Donald Trump jumping backwards. It was, of course, a metaphor for everything this moment. Donald Trump said, not off the cuff, but in a prepared statement that Muslims should be banned from entering the U.S. for now. He clarified later that athletes and perhaps Muslim service members should be allowed to come in, but not didn't didn't really back off of anything he said. He spoke in more or less favorable terms about internment camps, which he also seems to be contemplating in some fashion. He was condemned widely, although not universally, but widely. You did have Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, speak out vehemently against him. Dick Cheney he spoke out against what Trump had said. Everyone says what he is saying is an anathema to American values. Um, but Emily, it does seem there's a weird two-step happening, which is that there's a lot of condemnation of this particular incarnation of Trump's ideas, but not so much condemnation of Trump. And there are also a lot of ideas that are a little bit similar to, or a lot similar to what Trump is saying. So is what Trump pr- is proposing so different from what other people mostly on the right are proposing? Well, I think you're talking about the the question of whether we can say we're only taking non-Muslim Syrian refugees, which a whole bunch of Republican candidates had gotten behind that one. And that also makes a religion-based distinction about who gets to come into the country. So there is a way in which this is like the outer edge of a broader push. And I also think, well, I find the whole thing just tremendously depressing, dispiriting, um, disillusioning. You know, Trump is tapping into some vein of American thought and belief. There are still people lining up behind him. We all keep waiting and wishing for his poll numbers to go down when he makes these kinds of splashes and they don't there's a way in which he still continues to get credit for kind of saying the thing no one else dares to say as if this is some great truth he's spouting as opposed to something that's like just racist and ugly john there are large groups of republican voters and not insignificant groups of democratic voters who actually support trump's idea at least if you poll them they're not outraged by it so I think can we before we get to the supporters, which is crucial because they had there are a lot of people who still support him. There are some people who support him more than ever now because of the outrage. Can I just talk about the outrage for a second? I think one thing that is different here is obviously the size and scope, although you're right. And Emily's right. There was religious based claims made about people who didn't have anything to do with the attacks in Paris, I think it's still true that there's there's only the story of using a Syrian yeah, is still unproven, Syrian, right? right yeah. Okay. So this is a part of a pattern. Some Democrats would say this pattern goes all the way back to questioning President Obama's birth certificate and where he's from, which is to say the argument on the on the left is that the Republicans have been, through a series of practices over the years, been telling voters that the the troubles in America are the result of the other, and that other has been defined in a variety of different ways, whether it's the Chinese who beat us in trade deals or President Obama, who isn't from here, that this is a brew that has been stewing. And what Trump has done is is it's gone from being a dog whistle to a foghorn. I mean, that's this was different. We talked about the 9-11 claims he was making as being a kind of a dog whistle. This is an explicit 
So I think that's the big thing is this is an explicit big But why is claim. that why is it more dangerous when it's an explicit big claim well, than when I, it's a dog Well, whether whistle? it's dangerous. Well, I you could argue maybe it's not. I mean, this is the, this is what I'm trying to get at. So when it's a dog whistle, you never you never quite know what's happening. Are they is a person playing on uh, fears, stoking fears and it's hard to pin down. Here he's come out in and been overt about his view that that people based on the religion they practice should be barred from the United States. And so what I have found uh, interesting in the responses is that people call him a racist and they say this is out of bounds and all of that. But no one, with perhaps the exception of Lindsey Graham, particularly in his own party, has made a case for why this is bad. Someone needs to stand up and make a case for the values that they think are being trampled here and say why this is beyond the pale, both as a question of, of morality, that you don't define an entire religion based on the acts of a small number, uh, or in this case, you know, two people maybe. But then I think more broadly, there's a national security argument to be made here that A, this is defining the religion just as ISIS would like to see it be defined. That B, that, that a lot of the allies, and this is the, this is the point that Paul Ryan made, but only in a couple sentences, but that the allies that the U.S. is working close, most closely with to fight ISIS are Muslim countries, and that there's a national security, real national security downside and possibility that you could create a disaffected Muslim population in the United States when they see thousands of people cheering the idea of not allowing Muslims in the United States, that that creates the kind of conditions in the United States, goes the argument, that is a petri dish for radicalization that we've seen in other countries. And then, in fact, al-Baghdadi, the ISIS leader, has said basically he's trying to remove the gray area to either so that if you're a Muslim, you either live in the caliphate or you live in a place where they will persecute you. And that's the choice he'd like to make. And to the extent that somebody's arguing for something that looks like persecution, that helps him. Nobody's making that argument out loud. And it's, it seems to me that that just saying this is beyond the pale isn't enough, that there needs to be somebody to make that case if they believe it. I think your articulation of why what Trump has said is both hateful and dangerous to our national security was very good. But I'm, I still am slightly befuddled by why there is so much outrage about what Trump is saying, because it actually doesn't seem to me that different from what is being said in so many other yeah. places around the world. Well, it's just all, different from American politics, also, but it's not different from European politics. I think politics. you're right. Also, you had a Ben – when Ben Carson said he he didn't – think it was consistent with the Constitution to have a Muslim be president. That arguably, I mean, if you were ranking these things, uh, the case Donald Trump makes is, hey, we got an emergency here, and I'm just applying common sense to an um, acute emergency situation. But Ben Carson wasn't responding to an emergency, and it was the office of the presidency, which is, so you could argue that that is using religion and a more, as a stricter religious test than what even Trump is, is offering. And that got some notice, but obviously didn't have the reaction. And the difference, of course, is that, I mean, the real danger, as this has been described to me by both Republicans and Democrats, is that what is seen in the rest of the world is that this idea is put forward, and then you see thousands of people cheering it in a stadium. And that what that does is it sends the message to Muslims overseas that whatever U.S. policy is, the real underlying thrust of the American people is that they agree with this anti-Islamic right. idea, yep. and that that is a that is an idea that you don't want out there in a world where it's a battle of ideas, and where the Washington Post had a story on the on the front page that said that a lot of people believe that the U.S. is allied with ISIS. Now, that's a rumor that's this is not related to Trump, but it's just a, a, an example of how the rumors can gain a currency in a world where you're essentially fighting a public relations war as right. much as a physical war. Isn't there also a difference in the fact that there are... So 
in Europe, there are the percentage of the Muslim population is higher. And the struggles that you're right, France, Germany, Hungary, the nativist struggles going on there are familiar from this context of lots of disaffected Muslims living essentially in, you know, farther off slum suburbs, this whole problem, this stew that has bred a lot of terrorism we've talked about. I'm not saying that makes it okay, but that's a problem that's familiar to us in Europe. We don't have that well, here. Our Muslim population is less than 1% of the total population in the United States. And so we have not had a moment like this well, but, in which a major presidential candidate whose poll numbers continue to rise is saying things that are so bigoted. Right. That, but I would point out that actually these nationalist and nativist sentiments ex also exist in countries which don't have huge. In the Nordic countries, there are some really nasty parties of this vein, which don't have huge numbers of immigrants. One of the things that I think is interesting and why this is, there, there's a, a real substantive conversation that kind of has to take place is that there has been this presumption that radicalization and ghettoization are two things that go hand in hand. That radicalization is a product of be, living in a community, which is a disenfranchised, poor community where you're surrounded by other people like yourselves, and that that's fundamentally what produces radicalization. This ISIS model seems to suggest that radicalization happens anywhere, that radical, because the online community is so strong and so effective at reinforcing people's sense of alienation and, the, and their, then their sense of connection to other people like themselves, it doesn't require a ghetto, it doesn't require a mosque, it doesn't require poverty. It just simply requires that somebody connect with other people of like-minded ideas. And that's a new thing. And it does suggest that, that even absent uh, large concentrated populations, America might face some of the, the same issues, which is why I think Trump's this idea of his take hold, why it nags at people, why it knits at them. Yeah, Wait, we feel vulnerable in a new yeah. way, right? Sayyid Farouk and Tashmi Malik, the perpetrators of the San Bernardino shootings, they have a very crazy narrative for this kind of like they weren't living in any any of the circumstances you were just talking well, about. They seem to have had different lives. That supports That's the argument people are that scared. Right. That supports the argument that this is an ideological thing, that this isn't about economic outcomes or economic conditions and that people who are willing and able to carry out an attack over the course of patiently carry it out over two years, no matter how many laws there were, would probably be able to show that, take that focus and put it towards some other effort of mass destruction. But we should get back to the Trump voters. Yeah, let's go back to Trump. So, John, you wrote a bit this week about why condemnation from the usual people who condemn Trump is not meaningful. It has no impact. There's this particular outrage that he's committed upon the world, he seems to be benefiting in polls, if anything. When he says something that people um, get outraged about, it's proof to them that he's doing what they like about him, which is he's speaking the truth. And that's why in this instance, yes, there's been more condemnation from Dick Cheney and Paul Ryan, but nobody's explaining why this is a bad thing, really. I mean, at length or in any way that if we would know it, if we saw if there was a campaign event where a candidate said, look, I want to give a speech now today for 25 minutes about why this is dangerous, that would be different than what we've had. What we've had is essentially a little bit more amplitude of what we've seen before when he said things either about John McCain or Mexicans. And so for his voters, this looks like more more political correctness. Um, and that they think is destroying the country. Uh, and so when his opponents attack him, we've saw this in the in the Frank Luntz uh, focus groups, they are they cling to him 
tighter. And they explain away by basically doing a version of what people used to do with John McCain. Liberals who like John McCain used to hear his campaign rhetoric and say, oh, when he gets in, in the Oval Office, he's not he doesn't really he's not going to do that stuff. He's just trying to get elected. That's what some of the Trump voters say about him. So I think it's a very difficult in a multi-candidate field where the other candidates split up the non-Trump vote. Tricky for him to. Right. There was this article on Vox this week about ethnic outbidding, which talked about there's a psychological phenomenon. I have no idea if this is true, but some academic says that one thing that happens when you're appealing to a largely homogenous ethnically defined group that they will demonize the other. And in fact, once someone starts demonizing the other, each candidate who's trying to appeal to that dominant homogenous group will demonize even further. And that Trump is simply the the plus ultra of that in American you know, right wing politics. And there's no harm in saying something even worse than the guy before you said it. I think also two other things that come out of this is that candidates who attack him have found when you show the Trump voters, as Frank Luntz did in this focus group, showed them the attacks related to this anti-Muslim proposal, their affection for and strength for Trump grew. It didn't go to the guy who was doing the attacking because it's coming from a quarter that people don't like and distrust, and it makes them hunker down in their support of him. Emily, is the GOP going to suffer in the general election because of what Trump is saying, or is it actually, no, it's going to mobilize a bunch of voters? I really don't know. I see part of me thinks that this has gone on long enough that even if he's not the nominee, there's going to be residue from him and it's going to stick to the party and hurt at least the presidential candidate. And part of me thinks that this will just like go away like a bad dream and people will forget about it because memories are short and Trump isn't exactly a Republican anyway. He's certainly not from the Republican establishment. He's like his own phenomenon. And so as long as they're able to figure out how to save the nomination from him, that they'll recover. John, what do you think? As someone who's in favor of big arguments about things. What Trump is doing is hitting on a real feeling in the country, both about security, about globalization, about technological change. I mean, this is the outcome of a lot of forces that have been roiling for you know the last 15 years. And what would be great is if those who would oppose his point of view would actually step up and own it. None of the Republican candidates at the moment have said they would refuse to endorse him if he became the nominee. Why is that important? Well, it it would be an actual shift in what has been the situation in the political uh, race so far, which is, yes, he says something and he gets criticized for it, but that's sort of it. It's for somebody to stand up for the alternative point of view, not because whether the alternative point of view is right or wrong, just stand up for a point of view. Right now, he's he owns the the kind of the argument because he's the one uh, who's willing to risk something and nobody else is really risking it more than just to be mildly critical. I should we should point out that there are um, some new poll numbers Thursday night from NBC about the support for this. And before reading these poll numbers, I think one thing that's important to know is that in some polls, the majority of Republicans disagree with Trump's immigration proposals. And yet, nevertheless, he's leading in the Republican race. So there's also a disconnect between they can disagree. This gets back to the McCain idea, disagree with what he's actually proposing, but still think uh, he should be president. But the NBC found that 57 percent uh, of all adults disagree with the proposal. 25 percent agree. Among Democrats, 25 percent agree. And 45 uh, percent of independents agree. So this is not just crazy Republicans. Um, that gives you a sense of the first polling that's been done, I believe. And certainly they have good pollsters there. 
uh, on. Oh, don't on, flatter on your idea. opponents. Don't flatter NBC. <laughs> don't do, don't feel the need to do that. You're a CBS man. I we and, have great pollsters too, but they just happen to this. These just happen to come out as as we were taping the show. All right. Let's hear from our first sponsor, which is Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. The traffic, the parking, the huge lines with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. So use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the holiday season. Everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. Then the mail carrier picks it up. It is easy, it's convenient, and you should use it right now. If you sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST, you get a special offer, a four-week trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Abigail Fisher graduated from Louisiana State University recently, but that is not where she wanted to go to college. She wanted to go to the University of Texas. She's a Texan. She hoped to go there. And her rejection by that school is at issue in an endless, endless, endless case, which went to the Supreme Court this week about racial recognition, racial preference, something in college admissions at public universities. So I read Emily Bazelon on this. I read Adam Liptak on this. I read SCOTUS blog on this. I read a whole bunch of things on this. And you know what? I found this case absolutely confounding. I was so confused by this case. Emily, or maybe John. <laughs> yeah. yes. we'll John, John is like question mark. Question In my mark. reading, I mean, I, there were some paragraphs where I just thought, what the hell is this? Like, yeah. Can, can you try to explain this case? No, but you have to tell me what you're confused about. I, I honestly, it's like, I don't understand. Is it a case about... It's, it's clearly not a case about quotas. It's not an issue. But there are these two separate no, no quotas. There are these two separate admission things that the University of Texas does. I don't understand <laughs> that. Yeah. Well, I don't understand whether this is a live case because she's no longer – she's already graduated from college. Why is this even at, at, at issue? I, do, I just don't is, – mm. is it about quota? Is it about whether any racial preference is okay, the particular racial preference? Is it even about racial preference? I just don't – I really don't understand Also, it. I don't get – there was one article I read that said this could mean nothing. Or this could be in a whole lot. It's like, and so I was, I was already thinking. So yeah, break I don't it down. No, it's like, is this affirmative action? Is this when we people talk about affirmative action? Is this, this affirmative is... action, or is this something else? I just don't get it. Okay, the University of Texas has a hybrid system for admission that I don't think any other university in the country has. Here's how it works. Right now, about seventy-five percent of the spots in every class go to kids who graduate in the top 10% of their high school classes across the state, okay? And so because Texas, like lots of states, has residential segregation, that top 10% admissions process produces some number of black and Hispanic kids into this class. Is it top, can I pause and ask a question? Yep. Is that top 10% system at issue legally in this case or not? Not so much, no. I mean, Justice Ginsburg has a critique of it. She points out that it itself is incredibly race conscious. It depends on racial segregation in order to produce diversity. But the conservative justices in the case, and in particular Justice Kennedy, who's the only vote who's up for grabs, they seem to be fine with top 10% plans. And there are a couple other states that use top 10% plans, in particular California, which has banned racial preferences, banned what we think of as affirmative action in university admissions. Okay. 
Should I keep going? Yes, please. Okay. So now we have 25% of the class at UT. And here's what the university says. They say, we want to make sure to round out this class with kids who have a number of different leadership skills and backgrounds, backgrounds of all kinds, kids who have different family kinds of compositions or who come from particular neighborhoods or are violin players, whatever. And so for these remaining 25% of the spaces, they use what they call holistic admissions. There are a couple essays. They look at your extracurriculars. There are academic credentials in there. And then there are a number of personal attributes, socioeconomics, your neighborhood. And one of these attributes is race. So that's affirmative action. It's, uh, I would say, a kind of very mild form of affirmative action because it's one, race is one attribute with lots of other things, and it only affects 25% of the total admissions. The other thing to say about this, I find this to be a deep irony of this case. When you look at the kids who get in to UT through holistic admissions, they're disproportionately white. So whatever role race is playing in this corner of admissions at UT, it is not doing the work that would produce a highly numerous group of Black and Hispanic kids. Can I ask a, this is a totally off point question. I was just thinking about this because I have a child who's about to reach college application age. Does that mean if you're in the top 10% of a Texas high school, you just don't even have to apply, like you're in at UT, you could just not even bother with the whole process. You just don't even have to take the SAT. No, no, you have to apply. You have to say you want to go, but you know you're going to get in. You have guaranteed admission to you don't the have to. Do, all Texas. you have to do is yes, just finish in the top means. 10%. What if you go to a private school? Then you don't count don't as part of this pool. It's just you GPA, and you can just take shop. Doesn't California do something like that? I don't know. Yeah, basically. Yes, California has something like this. The question for the Supreme Court is supposed to be whether this this admission system with these two parts I've described, whether it's constitutional. The other thing about Abigail Fisher is the University of Texas said that even if she was like the, you know, even if she was black or Hispanic, she wouldn't have gotten in because her credentials were too low. And so for years, they've been arguing that she doesn't have standing, that the case is moot, that the court shouldn't be entertaining this case at all. But she has this champion, Edward Bloom, who's this very successful conservative litigator who has figured out how to bring the kind of activist lawsuits from the point of view of the right that liberals used to own. He's also the person behind the one person, one vote case that we're about to talk about soon. And he's bringing other affirmative action challenges against Harvard and the University of North Carolina. So for whatever reason, the Supreme Court picked this kind of weird case And this is the second time this case has come before the court. We already had a first one run in 2013. So, Emily, just just, because I clearly am just out of date with what's going on with affirmative action. So the constitutional issue is what? That that you get anything that's a racial (laughs) preference, there's a strict scrutiny standard applied for there has to be some really great reason for it. Right. So, yeah, that was that was perfect. Basically, yeah, the 14th Amendment says equal protection under the law. We know it was written during Reconstruction because Congress was worried about the rights of black people, of former slaves. The Supreme Court doesn't care about those origins, or at least the conservatives on the court say any kind of race consciousness is very suspect. And so they apply what you just said, this higher legal standard called strict scrutiny, where any government program that takes race into account, the government has to show they have a compelling reason for it and that it's been narrowly tailored. And so that's why we're here, even though this is a program that's supposed to benefit people of color because it's race conscious. 
conscious is still held to this strict scrutiny standard. One of the things that I read said that it seemed like the justices had a, had a skepticism that race is an influence at all in American life. Is that it, or do they think the influence isn't big enough to override other things that are worth protecting? Justice Roberts has famously said, essentially, like, whenever the government divides people by race, it's a bad thing the government is doing. The question is, are they imagining we live in a colorblind world, and so it's time to just stop acting as if racism is a social force that matters? Or are they being aspirational? Are they saying the way we get to a colorblind world is by preventing? And they have given different answers at different times. But I have to say, I mean, as I'm sure you guys know, there was a kind of amazing moment where there was even like a muted gasp in the courtroom this week when Justice Scalia went down this road of saying essentially like maybe black kids should go to less advanced schools because as beneficiaries of affirmative action, they can't handle being at the good schools. And Well, wait, is... but isn't that I mean, there is a there's a whole set of studies and analysis about that idea. Right. I mean, this isn't just like him yes. winging. The notion of mismatch is... No, that's totally true. I just meant that as a reflection of, like, his views of race, that was really striking. But yes, you're right. I mean, there there is a whole literature about mismatch. I actually wrote one of my very first pieces at Slate about mismatch theory. And explain that to people. Who... Yeah, so mismatch theory is this idea. One of the main proponents of it is a law professor at UCLA named Richard Sander, and he wrote a book with Stuart Taylor about this, and then... There are a few other people, Gail Harriet, who used to be on the U.S. Commission for Civil Rights in the Bush administration. They're the main proponents. And the idea is that if you take kids who are less qualified to be in a selective college setting, like you let kids into Harvard and Yale who have worse grades, they're going to flounder and that's going to be bad for them. And so if you th- let's just give this argument its airing. If that were true, that's like the best, best argument against affirmative action, because it means that affirmative action isn't just hurting the white kids who, in this view, should have gotten those spaces. It's also hurting the black and Hispanic kids that you let in in front of the white kids. So it's very powerful. It's also super toxic. I mean, I think that's the reason why when Scalia brought this up in such a blunt way, it sounded really awful to a lot of people. And it's not true. I mean, that's a slight oversimplification because I'm basically just dismissing a fight that's going on in the research. But for all intents and purposes, it's not true. There's a second part of the research, too, right, which is not just that they don't do as well, but that they can do better in other schools. But what Emily is saying is that it's not true. No, 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 I know. But I'm saying there are two claims being made. Yes, you're right. And I have to say, like, I I feel so strongly about this because I teach at an institution which, you know, has some affirmative action. Yale has law school, has some affirmative action. And I have such talented students of all races and ethnicities. And the notion that some of them are less deserving of being there or that they can't hack it and that's bad for them, that is the opposite of my experience. It doesn't mean that it never happened. When affirmative action started in the 60s and early 70s, it was done in a much more ham-fisted way. And there was some evidence that kids who were really not ready to be at a top school we're floundering, but that's a long time ago, and right. affirmative action has gotten much more sophisticated. And so I just, the whole thing, it just, oh, I, I find it very upsetting. 
Sorry. All right, Emily. Um, when you're now that you've stopped being upset for a moment, yes. can we just okay. close on this one question? To go back to John's original point was that that is this a huge? This could mean nothing, or this could mean right. everything. <laughs> what what's uh, the possibility for nothing right. or everything? Can I yeah. also well, just sorry a... before you move on? Yeah. It was, so it was the gasp at Scalia just because people weren't expecting to hear that kind of thing? Is it because he churlishly mangled the question? Or is it because it should have never have been asked at all? Because it seems like there's a, this theory, the mismatch theory is out there. And so you you want to ask about it and get it shot down or affirmed or whatever, but it's out there. So Right. I know. That's such a good question. I've been thinking about this. Well, one thing is that he didn't couch it in the usual slightly more careful language. So usually if you were really going to be a faithful proponent of the mismatch theory, you would be very careful to say something like, on average – some black students, you wouldn't make this blanket point that like all black students are less qualified, which is so close to, you know, other completely uh, wrong notions about race and intelligence. It just takes you in a bad direction. He Scalia doesn't care. He isn't accountable for any kind of politics. And so he just said it in this super blunt way. So I think he both did a disservice, I suppose, to mismatch theory and kind of overstating it. But I also, part of me, I was divided. Part of me was like, well, yeah, now people can hear what this really is. And it is pretty ugly. And maybe it's okay that it's being outed for its ugliness. Now, can you answer my question and not just John's? (laughs) Yeah. Although I'm curious. I mean, what do you guys, can we pause there for a second? Did you feel like it was useful that he talked about it? Or were you just like... I think it's always useful that that people ask questions even about controversial things because if if it's crazy then it can be knocked down easily by a smart litigant who can explain why it's crazy it's my goes it goes back to trump if trump is wrong somebody should get up and not just assume everybody thinks that this is like obvious why what he said is so out of bounds make the argument make the case beat him in and especially in a court of law you beat him with ideas you don't just like gasp you beat the shit out of the idea and that yeah. and so you have you have to surface all of the questions and then get them beaten in public because then it matters. Then it's like done as opposed to just like gingerly moving around things. I mean, in this case, the point is that there's actual scholarship out there. And if the scholarship is bad, then destroy it so that it no longer lives as opposed to kind of having it continuing to zombie out there. I've never agreed with John Dickerson as much as I agree with him at this point. I think I just want to stop. I'm dropping my uh, headphones. And dropping your mic. Well, so the last time this case was before the Supreme Court, a whole bunch of social scientists, including a couple of members of the National Academy of Sciences, wrote a very patient, thorough brief debunking mismatch theory and saying all the things social scientists say. This is methodologically unsound. They didn't do the research right. They didn't control. They didn't do X, Y, Z. What's sort of amazing to me, and I haven't read enough recently, but I'm surprised at the tenaciousness with which the proponents of mismatch theory have held on to this. I a little bit don't get it. And there is now a new 2014 article by this guy named Richard Lempert, who's been a longtime critic of mismatch theory. And I was reading it last night and then comparing it to the new brief that Richard Sander wrote. And if you just read those two documents, you would be like, uh, the sky is blue. No, the sky is pink. It's just like they're they're both accusing the other of being completely wrong scientifically. And so someone needs to go in and like explain who has the better of the argument. So I hope we get a really good, smart piece about that soon. I kind of hope I don't have to write it. All too. Right. 
Okay, because you <laughs> obviously are refusing to answer my question. We will move on. I'm not. I do. I want to answer your question. All right, you get 30 so seconds. A, 30 seconds. Why is it nothing? Crazy, why is it nothing? There, why is it nothing? Well, there was a crazy ar- moment in oral argument no, where Justice Kennedy seconds. said, no, I need like a minute. This is the gab fest. You're not going to play music on me as I go out. Where Justice Kennedy said something like, well, maybe we should send this back to the appeals court one more time for more fact-fighting. I mean, you know, you just imagine his colleagues being like, are you kidding me? I like that you said fact-fighting. So, that is very uh, did telling. I? Yes. Fact-finding. Yes, it could be fact-fighting. That's actually like a better way to think about it anyway. He's going to write the ruling. I assume he could write a ruling that, you know, very narrowly strikes down this particular University of Texas program. He could say they already have enough diversity because of their top 10 percent program. They don't need this holistic admissions. They can't have it. But he could write it in some way that doesn't apply to a single other school. But the much broader possibility, there are two. One is he could say, I finally am ready to end affirmative action. He There clearly are four other votes to just like pull the plug on racial preferences and admissions across the country that would dramatically change how schools do their admissions. It would be a big deal. There's kind of middle ground, which is he could say to schools, you have to first look for race neutral alternatives to achieve diversity, higher black and Hispanic admissions. And then if that doesn't work, maybe you can resort to looking to race. And the most hopeful thing about this whole area is that there is starting to be much more creative attempts at a kind of broad socioeconomic affirmative action where you don't just look at people's income, because if you do that, they're just too many white kids. They swamp the black and Hispanic kids in number. But if you also look at things like family wealth and neighborhood and other factors like that, you can both have more low income kids getting into college, which is a huge separate problem. Schools don't admit enough of those kids. And you could still, it maybe looks like from some new studies, you could still probably keep your minority admissions around where they are. So maybe that's like this perfect world we could land in. Although I fear that as I say that, it's wishful thinking. The evidence is very mixed. Let's hear from our second sponsor this week, which is Credit Karma. You may not think about the following two words much. Those two words are credit score. You may not know what your score is or what it means, but that's okay because Credit Karma is here to help. They know that your credit score can impact some of the most important things in your life, from your car and student loans to your credit card payments. And that's why Credit Karma gives you completely free credit reports and scores with no hidden costs and obligations. There's no catch. I use Credit Karma. They have never asked me for my credit card number. Everything on the site is free. And they don't just show you your score. They break it down so you can kind of understand what are the components of it, what actions affect your score. If you use too much of your credit limit, your score might go down. I did not know that. Credit Karma also knows that if that your credit score isn't something you always think about, so they even provide free alerts if something fishy comes up. So you can check your report and see if it's legit. You can text GABFEST to 89800 to download the free app and get started. You'll see why over 45 million Americans have used Credit Karma to monitor their score. And it really is free. They don't ever ask for your credit card. Ignorance is not bliss. Get your free credit report today by texting GABFEST to 89800 to download the free Credit Karma app right now. More Bazelon, more Supreme Court, more (laughs) Texas. Apparently the same lawyer even. One person, one vote. The same funder of the litigation. All right. We've talked about this case before. Emily, break it down for us quick. 
Okay, so this is a case about how states draw district lines for state elections. And the question is whether one person, one vote is based on the total population of a state. You look at where everybody lives, you divide them into pieces based on everybody, or whether one person, one vote only involves voters or eligible voters, in which case district lines would change in a way that would give more power to rural areas, which means Republicans, and less power to cities and Democrats in states that have lots of people who can't vote, which means the border states that have lots of immigrants. So when it comes to federal elections, it is very clear that it's people. It's based on a census count of the number of people who live in a place. It's in the Constitution. It is constitutional. Why is that not simply like, oh, that's settled, done, state law, same thing, boom? Because it's not in the Constitution. And so then in the 1960s, when the Supreme Court said one person, one vote, the principle also applied to state elections, the opinion's very confusing. They didn't anticipate that there, this discrepancy between voters, eligible voters, and people. And so they used the words voters and people kind of interchangeably. And then they did that for a long time in follow-up cases. And so no, they just never, never settled this question of how you count. So, John, this is a clearly a political issue in certain states where where largely Republicans think they can get some gains in state legislatures from this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Emily, is there what's the intellectual basis for this claim? Does it seem valid to make this consideration? I mean, you do look at these districts where there are districts where a lot of people vote and where a lot of people, more people are eligible to vote and you do think like, well, maybe maybe there's a case here. I don't think so, but I remember you guys did. I am allergic to this because I feel like elected representatives should elect all the people in their district, the kids, the disenfranchised felons, the immigrants. I don't care. It seems to me like they are all still represented. But other people have a different notion of representational democracy that's more voted, that's that's rooted in the voter. And there have been courts, there's an opinion by Alex Kaczynski, a judge on the Ninth Circuit, that kind of makes the best case for this as a kind of alternative vision of democracy. I don't accept, buy it myself, but it's certainly out there. Um, does and this, then the other... Do, does the, does the sorry. census... Sorry to interrupt. Do you guys know, does the census count everyone who is in the United States? Is it everyone who claims residence in the United States? If you're a tourist? Mm. No, I think you have to have residence. If you are illegally living here, if you are somebody who's overstayed a visa but are living here, it tries to count you. Right. I think yeah, that's right. I, I think, think that's right. Yeah, think they although do. they don't have numbers for eligible voters. So one of the logistical right. problems with switching is that we don't actually have a reliable count of eligible voters or voters. Right. That seems that to be the biggest problem. That seems to be yeah, like, the biggest well, problem is that it's speaking. not there's no practical solution to carry forth the proposal that the plaintiffs want to carry forth. Right. Right. That's like a big problem. I have another political question about this case. So there are sort of three possibilities, right? One is that the plaintiffs are correct and one person, one vote is based on voters or eligible voters. And every single state has to totally change the way they draw district lines, even though we have no good database from which they could do that. That's like the chaos, crazy outcome of this case, which seems unlikely. Then there's a second option, which is that 
all the states have to use population the same way Congress does. All 50 states have been doing that. So that rule wouldn't change very much. But there's a third door, which Texas says is already the rule. I don't think it's clear, but that's what they say. They're the ones defending this case. They say that they can pick. They can do either population voting or eligible voter counting. And I wonder if there's this weird way in which even though Texas is defending its population count, I mean, isn't the political impetus in a state like Texas to try to move the power toward the rural Republican-led areas? And so if the Supreme Court comes out and very clearly says, oh, yes, you can pick, then won't there be pressure mounting in Texas and other Republican oh, yeah. states? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Texas right. will flip Wait, in a second. It, you mean Texas to make will, it voter? Yeah, to make it voter. Yeah. They'll, Texas yeah, well, will do they, it right. three but, I mean, seconds it, from now. To, but also, so the same way would be true. Democrats would want population. Right. If you could pick. Right. The Supreme Court said really clearly, oh, go ahead and pick. It seems like it could have really big political repercussions. And states like Texas would just could just change what they're doing. Where is this real? Who does this really impact? Is this that places that have lots of immigrants are hit by it? Places that have lots of children? Where, Both. Where, I would have thought rural and areas had a, had a lot felons. of and disenfranchised felons. But the, is there and and you? I think we've done we've been through this round before. But how many disenfranchised felons? I mean, in other words, is that a big in certain number? states? There in are good numbers. In, states, in Florida, that's a lot of people. Yeah, remember the, this comes up. Yeah, every time yeah, yeah. No, I know, I know. I realize I mean, I, I've I, asked I, this question. Before, I come really. back to this one issue, which is I, I do think population is probably the right count, but I continue to be troubled by the idea that people who are living illegally in this country are counted for the per, in this purpose. That seems to me weird. seems to me like peop- anyone who's legally a resident of the United States, they ought to be counted there represented. I don't know that if you're living in the United States illegally that you des- that you are entitled to representation in the government. Like it doesn't that doesn't in- make sense to me exactly. But I that's I wouldn't I, I wouldn't blow it up over that issue. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, do Maybe you, we can just accept that little quirk. Do, do you know where this case is going? I kind of imagine that they're going to flirt with this idea of making it clear that states can choose and then leave it up to the Republicans in states like Texas right. to kind of run with that. That's I mean, I can't imagine they're going to throw all of the redistricting in the country in chaos when there's no good database. That just seems like nutty. But if they open the door to a state to try to create such a database and do this, that seems like a really smart Stealth. That's like the John Roberts stealth move yeah. where you change the political balance of power, but you do it in this way that seems like reasonable and unassuming and unobjectionable. You know what's so odd is this I, that anyone could possibly believe that one of the problems in American politics, even in state politics, is that rural areas have too little power. That is just right. so it's insane. So... Even in states with big cities, Texas has huge cities, six, seven big cities that are in the top 30 in the United States. It's weird to think that these cities are going to be disenfranchised more. It's it's strange to me. It's strange that it's happened, that that's a thing. New York City, which is entirely responsible, essentially, for the the health of New York State as as an economy, New York City and the other cities in New York, the idea that New York City has does not basically effectively control the New York State legislature is strange. It ought to be under the full control of New York City. I don't get it. These rural areas are so overrepresented. Anyway. Let's go to our other advertiser, which is Blue Apron. You need to know how to cook. Cooking at home means eating healthier and saving money instead of ordering expensive takeout again, John. Where do you start? 
Blue Apron has you covered. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers all the fresh ingredients you need to create home-cooked meals. Just follow the easy step-by-step instructions. Each meal can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. No overwhelming trips to the grocery store. No more sad takeout. No matter your dietary preferences, Blue Apron makes it a breeze to discover and prepare dishes like roast chicken and potato latkes with Savoy cabbage and apple mustard chutney. That's a good Hanukkah week dinner. You can do that right in your own kitchen. Cook with ingredients that you've never used before, like watermelon radishes, farro, and purple potatoes. And recipes are between 500 to 700 calories per portion, so they're delicious and good for you. Right now, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com gabfest. That's blueapron.com gabfest. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are contemplating whether you will have a vote in your state election next year, Emily Bazelon, what will you be chattering about? I was so impressed this week with a story in Slate by Katie Waldman called There Once Was a Girl. Did you guys read this? Yes. And I heard her talk about it on not one but two Slate podcasts. Oh, well, let me be the third person. (laughs) We don't have Katie here, but I'm just going to praise it. It's about... The false narratives of anorexia. It's like Katie's exploration of her and her sister's battle with eating disorders. And then also all the ways in which literature, especially with female young heroines, tends to romanticize not just like being lissom and lithe and thin, but even like being frail and and starving yourself. I just thought it was such an interesting exploration of the personal and the literary. And I think for a lot of women, it will re- really resonate, especially if you have a sister. There's some really lovely moving passages about Katie and her sister. All right. JD, what's your chatter? Uh, my chatter is about something. I, I have the feeling that um, GabFest listeners may have already heard about this. Is um, it Winston Churchill? Is it Teddy Roosevelt? No, it's not. But the, for those who... Um, is it The Wire? No, is it's it in not. the New Yorker? No, I was going to say, but it is in the New York Times where I first came across it, and therefore the, the Venn diagram. And also, Stephen Colbert talked about it. Boom. But anyway, here we go. When I found this like a week ago, I was like, this is just a chatter made for us. Okay, so in Turkey, there is a doctor who worked for the um, state health service, public health institution of Turkey. And this doctor, Dr. C-I-F-T-C-I, and I can't remember how Stephen Colbert pronounced it. So Sifti, I don't know. Anyway, this doctor shared a meme. And in the meme, it shows President Erdogan in three different situations. One sort of smiling, another eating a piece of what looks like a chicken leg, and the third being like sort of surprised. And next to each picture is a picture of Gollum. Gollum! Yes. Now, it depends. In one, it looks like Smeagol. In the middle one, it looks like Gollum. And in the third one, it looks like Smeagol. And this is the point, which is that the poor doctor lost his job, but he now also faces a two-year prison sentence because it turns out in Turkey you can't say bad things about the president. And if you do, even if that amounts to a retweet, it gets you in trouble. And so the poor doctor's future hinges on whether Gollum is an evil character, whether this is a bad thing to be. And what I hadn't realized until I was talking now is that at least in two of the three, it's when he's sort of in his Smeagol phase. The middle one, you could argue, might be when he's when he's like in full Gollum, although I might be missing that. But anyway, the point is that there is a great passage from the book and the movie where this is debated, where Frodo once wishes that Bilbo had killed Gollum. 
And Gandalf says something like, even the wisest of men cannot know all ends. Don't be so quick to deal out death and judgment. And then he says, like, I still believe Gollum has some part to play. So it's like right at the heart of the of the book. Yeah, yeah. And now it's at the heart of this case, which uh, I don't know. How you know, this going. is so this is so gabfesty, so gabfest chattery that I've actually I, I have had a conversation about this thing with somebody else. But I guess it wasn't on the gabfest. No, but you're it, just I, in your life. Going, in, in the last like four days, I've talked about this subject. It's so fascinating. We should post those pictures. Yeah, yeah, and the the, the resemblance is uh, yeah kind of amazing. We're not we're not going to um, do a live show in Turkey anytime soon. That's for sure. And then there's obviously a huge central argument about whether Gollum's essential self is good or or evil. I mean, obviously was good until the power of the One Ring took him over, but. Is that still, does that light flicker still inside of him? And therefore, I don't know. We, it'd be great to get the transcript. Doth we could it, act it all out. Doth it, doth it flicker. Uh, all right. That was great. Aired again, son of Erewhon. Except That's he right. Be. He's a Padawan. Oh, no, that's Star Wars. Um, <laughs> my chatter is about a fantastic thing that Tyler Cowen retweeted on Twitter that I saw, which at this moment, we're not actually sure if it still exists, but I'm sure it exists somewhere. So I'm just going to tell you about it which is a very short video of, a, I assume, a researcher with an orangutan. <laughs> and the researcher does a magic trick where he puts a cherry inside a cup, covers the cup, then shakes the cup around, and then actually clearly like lowers the cup and dumps the cherry out. You, can, you as a human, can see that. And then puts the cup back in front of the orangutan, opens it, and there's no cherry in it. And the orangutan's reaction is just fantastic. This ape just like stares for a moment and then bursts into laughter, falling on the floor laughter with delight at this magic trick. It is such a joy. I've watched it about 10 times today. It will bring you pleasure. Let's hope the internet restores it to its place in bringing pleasure to the world. Our intern is Elbisgard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. The entire Panoply team is in the Washington office. They're having some meeting, some quarterly meeting. Mm. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. And please, of course, subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. iTunes, did you notice? Named us one of the podcasts of the year. Where did you see that? I saw you send that email, but where did It was you... on iTunes. On they... iTunes. Yeah. <laughs> but I they, mean, they had They some... had a list. Yeah, they had their I podcast I... of the year. Right. Yeah. And there was, we, were, we were in their classic podcast. There's a list of like seven classic podcasts, which are their podcasts of the year, and we were one of them. So huh. huzzah we to, in good company. to Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and to me, David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. I'm Gretchen Rubin. And I'm Elizabeth Kraft, her sister and happiness guinea pig. Every week on our podcast, we talk about a try this at home tip for making your life happier. Which try this at home tip do you think listeners have most responded to? Without question, the one minute rule. Oh, the rule that anything that you can do in less than a minute, you do without delay. Yes, put a dish in a dishwasher, hang up a coat, whatever. I have to say, this has improved my marriage because my husband is neat and I'm not. And this is a good example of that happiness can feel very transcendent and abstract, but sometimes it's the little practical things that give us the biggest happiness boost. Search for Happier wherever you find your podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.